0: All right, good morning, Trinity Church. How you doing? Yeah, Merry Christmas. It, Christmas has happened. Uh, not today, but on this campus. And I want to appreciate so much Bill and all of his teams to not only decorate the campus so well, Steve's team's outside, Bill's team's in here, but great job. Can we thank the worship team today? What a great <laughs> job they did. If you, uh, you might have recognized the last song, it was the, the last song that we did last year in our kids' musical. And all I can remember is baby Jesus leading all of us while he was singing. Uh, what a great, great song that we get to remember. So it'll be emblazoned in my head forever. But uh, what a great moment. So we really got here. We're actually going to do a couple more Christmas songs at the end. We love Christmas time. We love Christmas music talking about Jesus's entrance into our world. So at the end of the service today, be sure not to go anywhere when I'm done because we've got a couple of great songs that we want to lead you in and just rejoice in this season together. We're really glad you're here today, especially if you're a guest here with us. Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is Todd Arnett and the lead pastor and we're excited to kick off this series today. If you have a Bible, you can open it. We're in the book of Luke today. Luke is the third book of the New Testament, the third of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter two. And in your uh, Trinity this week, this is a media piece you got when you walked in. There are a set of notes in this uh, great golden rod color. And I know my colors of papers, by the way, people were impressed with that the other day. I've been around uh, church uh, copies for a long time. So anyways, get your goldenrod piece out there and we'll uh, dive in. We've got some great things to look at. But we're excited to get to kick off this series. And as you were watching, I love uh, Chris Dowdy again made the bumper video for us. Does such a great job. And you were loving it as you're going through and you're like, these are things I think of at Christmas. And, and then Dorothy showed up. And you're like, what in the world do the Cubs have to do with Christmas? And that's what I get to explain today. There were three pictures at the end that didn't make a lot of sense to you. Um, what we're doing is we're calling our series Glimpses. If you're here today and you're under 20, you know what this is. Help me in the front. Yeah, virtual reality goggles. And I showed them when we did our, I think our uh, Good Friday service. I used these before. You'd strap in your phone and go to all kinds of different worlds uh, within that. But there is a predecessor To these, and it was called the Viewmaster. Okay? This is, uh, (laughs) listen to all the old people go, exactly. Your parents and their parents know this well, okay? And uh, this is great. This is like the real deal. Uh, We really found these, and it wasn't even in a museum. Um, But, but these are great. I'm actually looking today. You can't see these, so I apologize. These are wonders of the ocean, and I'm transported. Oh, there's a huge manta ray coming at me. Because they're not just one image. It's a three-dimensional image. What just wowed us, right? When we were young, we're like, are you kidding? It's like you're right there. And then now you have this, and you are there, okay? So, um, but, but these, these are, are great ways. And what we've done with this series is we thought this. We thought that when we approach Christmas... Often, it's the iconic things we tend to think of. We're, we're not opposed to them. This is not a, a, a bashing of, of red and green, okay? We're not out to attack Christmas trees, okay? None of those things. But obviously, none of those were there at Jesus' first arrival. And what we want to do is we actually want to look throughout this series in December. We want to look at pictures within our culture that probably even better than our iconic Christmas images communicate what really happened at Jesus' arrival. If we're going to pull out to about 30,000 feet and we're going to ask the question, what was really going on when God became one of us? as we get to celebrate Emmanuel during this Christmas season. So the first glimpse we're gonna look at today, I'll introduce you, this is my friend Dorothy Farrell. Dorothy, in this picture, is 90 years old. I should've done a little research to see if she's still alive, because this was a year ago, uh, 2016, after 108 years, right? After 108 years, the Cubs won the World Series. And there was this, yeah, go Cubs fans. And uh, there was this forever drought, right? We're talking about multiple generations. I have a copy of the same shirt, but this is a 4X. So I'm going to sleep in this when we're done with this series. But, um, but this, this is the same shirt. We were able to find one, and this is what it was. What a great thing. So many people, right, so many fans of the Cubs had lived their whole lives never seeing them win, The big one, at least. They might have won a few games here and there, but never won the big one. And Dorothy, this shirt was made when the Cubs were making their run last fall in 2016, and I love it. Just win one before I die, right? And when you have a 90-year-old holding that shirt, that's a powerful reality that in her whole lifetime she'd never seen it. I love the look on her face because all the more it communicates this idea of expectancy, this idea of longing and hope, please just make this happen. Dorothy's been a season ticket holder for the Cubs since 1984 and deeply longing for this thing to happen. And I just love the image that connects that dot. For us today, that's just a glimpse, just a small fragment of what all of humanity had been waiting for. You see, Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago, it seems like a long time ago, obviously, for us, but go back even further. It had been thousands of years when God had first said to Adam and Eve, he's giving them, pronouncing this curse upon their reality because of their sinful choice to do it their way rather than God's. But even in the middle of cursing all of creation, God says, but I'm gonna send someone born of you, Eve, born of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the snake. It was then and multiple, multiple prophecies that would come later on that were foretelling Jesus' first arrival. And in that time, those that were leaning forward, those that were awaiting, is this ever going to happen? So many lived and died and never saw that Jesus Messiah was coming. And you have to guess that somewhere in the midst of that, and you see it all throughout scripture, that's why the prophets are so often saying, hold on, don't give up hope. God is still sending his anointed one because why? People had given up hope. People had become complacent. People had become critical, wondering if God was ever gonna do what he said he was gonna do. And it was in that space That Jesus finally arrives and the hope was now finally met. That's what we want to look at because for us today we we do look back that's what Christmas is we look back on what was the beginning of the life that Jesus would live a sinless life about a sacrificial death he would die on a cross for you and ultimately he'd raise from the dead supernaturally on the third day that, that all happened when we go back and look at Jesus' advent. This is where it all begins. But as we look back 2,000 years ago, we also look forward. Because Jesus didn't just come once and return to the Father. He said multiple times, I am coming back. That's what we lean forward to. Jesus' second coming is where we are living in the middle of. So as generations had been awaiting Jesus' first arrival, now with 2,000 years of human history, we're awaiting his second. And as we'll see today, we do it leaning forward. In your notes and on the screen, this is our now what. This is what moves us throughout the week this week. Just as people awaited Jesus' first arrival, so we lean forward awaiting his return. Let's dial in today and take a look at our notes. Number one today, as we dial in, there's something uh, that Todd should have written down that he's looking at. Do you want to help me out on the screen, you guys? There it is. There is joy. There is joy that happens when uh, the waiting ends. There is joy when the waiting ends. I want to go back to that first. I want you to see today from the very beginning that hope has value and that waiting is worth it. I want you to hear that from the very beginning because as we look at the narrative of Jesus's entrance in the world, your Bibles are open to Luke 2, we're gonna see that when people actually got to see him, their joy was full, overflowing. And that should help us as we keep putting one foot in front of the next, awaiting Jesus's second return. We have multiple lessons we can learn from what they saw 2,000 years ago. And similar to our image of Dorothy today, is the idea, they were probably saying this about Messiah Jesus, or Father, just let him arrive before I die. Luke chapter two, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So in his lifetime, in Simeon's lifetime, he was going to see Jesus. Jesus. So here we are looking at Simeon. He's our first character we'll see today. And Simeon, no doubt, is probably elderly at this point. And he's lived his whole life. He's been a waiting Messiah just like generations before him. But he's unique in this. God says specifically, you will see him. Your eyes will be on my anointed one before you die. So that's why we love the cub shirt so much. Just win one before I die. Simeon could have been walking through the temple courts. Just let him arrive before I die. God has said this is gonna happen. Let's see it unfold. And it's that day, moved by the Spirit, he goes into the temple courts. Now we would assume, because of what we read in this passage, that Simeon was probably a Levitical priest. And he would have just many other times, even today, powerful today, that we're doing a child dedication, like Bill said, because that's exactly what Mary and Joseph were doing in Luke chapter two. They'd come as as given by the law to come and bring their firstborn son eight days into his birth to the city of Jerusalem and, and to, in exchange for his life, bring an offering. God had said, all of your firstborn are mine. And the way that you redeem them, the way you get them back is to bring an offering on their behalf. So Mary and Joseph come to do this, but Simeon, he knows this is no ordinary infant. This is the son of God. What I want you to see is what Simeon said, not only what he saw, not only his joy, but look at what he said. My eyes have seen your salvation, God, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I want you to see from the beginning, Simeon understood Jesus came to save the world, not just one people group. And you know what, most of us in this room today are what the Bible would call Gentiles. We're not of this unique race of people, the children of Israel. And so the the Bible's so clear that God came for you. Here's a funny thing we can forget sometimes. If we've been in church long enough, we begin to think that God just came for us. But not the people in our relational worlds, not the people in our neighborhoods, not the people that we work with, because sometimes people can be very challenging. And when you're struggling loving them, you're wondering how on earth can God? God does, and God did. And Simeon recognizes that with great clarity. Now, Simeon wasn't alone this day in terms of getting to to witness and, and see this Messiah come to life. Another follower of Yahweh got to see it firsthand. Next verse in Luke 2, verse 36, there was also a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. So Anna's 84 years old. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them, to Mary and Joseph. At that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Two faithful followers of Yahweh who had not been lulled into complacency who had not taken the path of the critic and said, I don't know if God's ever gonna make good on this, they were leaning forward. They were eagerly anticipating when Messiah was gonna come and he came in their lifetimes. And they were so excited, overwhelmed with joy that God would do this. They represent so many generations of people who had lived and died and never saw this, knew it was coming, had been told about it, but never got to see it but Simeon and Anna with their own two eyes got to. For those today that eagerly await Jesus' second arrival when he will come and make all things new, for those of us that follow him that are here today, that anticipate Jesus' return, let me simply remind you that it will be worth the wait. It will absolutely be worth the wait and that your joy will be overflowing when he returns. But an obvious and a fair question, what about in the meantime? What are you to do with that longing until he returns? What are are you to do about the painful experiences that you're even enduring today? Not last month, not a year ago. You're walking in today. What about those? A daily reminder that things are not as they should be. And what are you to do to keep from becoming a cynic who just becomes unbelieving that God is ever going to do this? I'm glad you asked. That's our second point. Number two in your notes. The Bible presents both the longing and the prescription. The Bible presents both the longing and the prescription. Here's what I mean by that, is that what I love, the more and more I've read the Bible, the more and more I continue to read it, I love how raw it is. I love how authentic it is. I love how it gives us the ability to say what we feel to God rather than hiding it, rather than wondering, am I allowed to, to venture that out? God, I'm confused. Is there a place I can say that? God, I'm angry. Is there a place I can say that? God, I'm heartbroken. Is there a place, a safe place where I can say that? And if you're wondering those same questions, let me tell you, that's the beauty of not just the Bible generically, but the book of Psalms specifically. Psalms is this amazing book. We call it sometimes the Psalter because these are 150 worship songs. These were the songs that the people of Israel sang and they're all over the map. There's so many different types of things represented in the Psalms but one of the realities that you see again and again over those 150 chapters is that we can bring the honest problems that we have before God and you're not gonna scare him. He's not going to in turn how dare you kind of a comment. God hears it, takes it all and is able to tell us now what to do. And that's what I want to look at today. If you've wondered in your lifetime, if it's about confusion over how everything in the world seems upside down, there's a psalm for that. If it's the frustration over how evil people seem to continue to succeed, there's a psalm for that. If it's fears about concerning if if your rescue will ever come in a time of peril, well, there's a psalm for that. Or as we're looking at today, if there's a question of how long God is taking to answer your cries for help and hope, there's a few psalms for that. So we're going to take a look at this today and kind of walk through. We're going to let the word of God just speak very clearly. And here's the great news. I need your help today. I need your help to help me preach this message because we're going to do some corporate reading together. We're going to see what the word of God says. How do we keep going forward when we don't know how to understand what God would be doing in this delay? God, you're taking way too long. What do I do in the meantime? of how we're to live while we're living between two worlds. God, you've promised X, but it's not happening. What do I do now? And what we'll see today, this honesty that comes about in the book of Psalms, will be helpful to us, but not only in saying what the problem is, but giving us the prescription, giving us the next step. What do I do in regard? So here's what we're going to do today. The, the room makes an even break right in the middle. This side of the room, in just a moment, you're going to read with me a psalm, a verse from the Psalms, and it's going to talk about the, the honest question from the psalm is, God, what's going on? But then over here, this side of the room, another verse is going to pop up, also from the book of Psalms, and it's going to give us the prescription. If this is the problem, God, it's so hard to wait, this is what I'm supposed to do in the meantime. So let's try one out. This side of the room, let's take a look. Psalm 13:1. It's up on the screen. Read it with me aloud. Let's read. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's the very beginning. That's the first words. Imagine us on this stage on a a typical weekend service. Verse one. How long, Lord? Are you paying attention? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You'd be sitting there singing that going, I think this is not right. Can you say that to God? God. David did. And the book of Psalms exists, not just songs and lyrics that David wrote, not just for a people that he wrote them to 1,500 years ago. He writes them for us. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? So this is the question. God, how, how is this supposed to happen? Let's read on this side. Here's the answer from Psalm 119. Read it with me. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. If the problem is, how long, Lord, are you even paying attention? Here's what I'm to do. I'm to wait. And in the middle of the waiting, I keep consistently being obedient. In the middle of the waiting, I consistently stay obedient, even though things might not make sense. Let's go back. Here's another one from Psalm 35. Read aloud with me. How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. This is David. And, and so many times in the Psalms, we'll read about David being on the run. He's on the run from those to his attackers. These lions isn't, aren't literal lions that are chasing him, but they're men who want to destroy his life. And look at the question. God, what I know is that people are pursuing me to destroy me. But what I also know is you're not paying attention how long, O Lord, will you look on? You're well aware of the problem, but you're not doing anything. I feel like you can relate to that. There's been times in your life, no doubt, you felt that way. What do I do? If that's the problem, what do I do? Read it on this side with me from Psalm 33. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Look at that. God, people are trying to destroy me. What do I do in the meantime? We wait and we look to God to be our defense. That's what a shield is for, right? That's how we defend ourselves is with a shield, not a spear, not a sword, a shield. We wait for the Lord and let Him defend us. That's what we do in the meantime. Let's go back. Another problem from Psalm 80 on this side. Read aloud with me. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? Wow, that's powerful. Just stop and look at that. God's not listening. At least that's the psalmist's perspective. God, we're praying and we're asking for you to intervene, but you seem to burn with anger against us. You're not paying attention to our prayers. Nothing is happening. No doubt there's been a time you felt that before. God, this seems useless. I don't know why I'm even praying. What do I do in the meantime? Psalm 27, let's on this side, let's read that. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So the prescription is the same again. Even in the midst of feeling abandoned, how long, O oh Lord, I'm called to wait and wait how? To be strong and take heart. Multiple times in the Psalms, it's as though the psalmist does what we call self-talk. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Like it's actually very healthy to go, hey, my brain is all over the place. My feelings are all over the place. How do I gather them? How do I focus? How do I remember what's true? I tell myself to wait To be strong and to take heart. I can't fix everything in my world, but I can also not give up. And sometimes that kind of soul talk, that kind of ability to go, let's stop, pause, and remind myself of what I know to be true, of who God is and how He cares for me, that's what gets me through it. Lastly, one more time on this side from Psalm 90, read it with me. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Man, that word relent is powerful. It means your hand is heavy upon me, lift it up. Stop opposing me, God, is really what that's saying. Have compassion. Instead of feeling like you're being pressed down by God, the prayer is, God, instead, be kind. Have compassion on my brokenness. You have felt that way before and cried out to God, and he seemingly hasn't done anything to change it. But what are we called to do on this side? What's the prescription? Read it with me from Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Would you leave that up? Look at that last line. It's so, it's so tangible to me. I can relate to this. More than watchmen wait for the morning. As we were even doing the child dedication today, we have this beautiful six-month-old who doesn't sleep. Now, we'll have to ask you guys, by the way, how she's doing. But at least initially, she wasn't. And any parent of a newborn can relate to what watchmen are waiting for. Watchmen are exactly what you think they are. They sit out on the city gates, and they they watch through the, the waiting of the night. And as the sun goes down, that's when they start their job. So think of what's happening over the course of those probably at least 10 to 12 hours. Their body is aching because they can't find the right position to finally feel comfortable. The dew has come down, and now they're cold and they're wet, and they are beat, dead, tired. Like a parent of a newborn, right? Dear God, will we ever sleep again? There's hope. There's hope. Okay? And and you get that. If you've ever raised kids, you know that. You're just like, I had no idea how much sleep mattered. I don't get it anymore. And you just kind of, oh, that was really loud. Sorry. (laughs) Slap your face. Keep trying to do it until finally things are going to change. But I love that last line. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And that is groaning. Groaning. That is strong. Your whole body senses this idea, God, when is this going to change? David, or this is actually the Psalm of the Ascent. Psalm 130 is awesome. They would sing these songs together collectively as they'd walk up to Jerusalem. Corporately as family units, they'd walk up to Jerusalem for the triannual feast that they would celebrate together as the people of God. And they'd sing this to themselves more than watchmen wait for the morning. So, my soul longs for you, O oh God. And in the meantime, what do I do? I put my hope in His Word. The Bible presents this beautiful tension this beautiful tension of the reality that we live at a time that is struggling, a time that is challenging. I love that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat that. I love that the Bible gives us entrance into the presence of God to say, God, I don't get it. God, I don't understand. God, when, how long? And as we've seen those honest pleas, we've also seen the honest what to do, the remedy. Keep waiting. Keep waiting and put your hope, put your trust in God. The point of all this is this, individuals who were involved as human authors of the Bible understood what it was to long and wait for God to rescue them, for him to fulfill his promises to them. But in addition to their cries for God to show up were also their soothing exhortations to wait, to put their steady hope in the God that they knew to be faithful, who had promised to make good on what he had said. And I want you to know this today, these, the book of Psalms was written for you, written for me to know what to do when I'm waiting. Number three today, we'll wrap it up with this. God's salvation is now and not yet. God's salvation is now and not yet. No doubt when you look back on your salvation experience, you, you think of the things that led up to the point when you would put your faith in the Lord. And I know not everyone in this room has made that decision yet, but for those of you who have, you, you think of the people who were influential. You think of the people who were praying for you. And you realize that time when you finally said, Jesus, I know I need you. I want to walk your way. And how great that was. And especially even those first days maybe of you walking in faith. And, and I had this great, this morning, it was so great. I got to talk to a, a lady after ser- first service. And Nancy was telling me, I, I became a Christian in college. And I loved to sing. And I'd sung Christmas songs my whole life. But that first Christmas, after I'd put my faith in Jesus, she began to even get emotional. It was so powerful. Because now I knew what I was singing about. As rich as that was, that time initially in your faith or other mountaintop moments that you've had, you also live in the reality of valleys. You live in the reality of things that are not as they should be. Things that you can rightly call out to God I say, God, how long? We're, I know we live in a microwave world, right? I get that. Southern California, we want everything right now. But we're talking about soulish things. Things that are not right in your family. Things that are not right with your own body. Things that are not right with your own soul. Things that are not right with your finances. Go on and on and on. God, when is this going to change? So you know the now, you know that you've been forgiven for your past, but you're wondering how the future is gonna shape up. God, when does this ever going to be? When will you make all things new? And the good news I wanna say today is this, ultimately he will. There's no doubt in my mind. The Bible speaks so confidently of it. That's what Jesus came to do. He entered a fallen, broken world to make all things new. And yet it's that tension that we're presented in in this now and not yet. While Jesus has come to save your soul, the reality of your full salvation has not yet been experienced. None of us have. And that tension that we live in now and not yet, that's what I wanna address today as we finish up. Though we don't await a savior like those who did for his first arrival, we do await Jesus to come back and to bring his kingdom come. In such a way that our future experience will be realized and our salvation made complete. You can either turn there or look on the screens. We'll finish today with Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 20 says this. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. It's a powerful passage. Romans 8, probably many have said, probably the most significant chapter in the entire Bible. And the most significant chapter in the entire Bible presents the tension of now and not yet. I find that so fascinating. This very topic we're looking at today surfaces in the chapter that so many say, if there's Any shred of the Bible I could have on a deserted island, it would be Romans 8. It's powerful to process the deep and all encompassing effect of Adam and Eve's choice. Their choice to live their way and not God's didn't just affect humanity, it affected all of the created order. Everything you see around us is touched, is stained by sin. And as a result, as a result, it's subject to decay. That's a powerful phrase. All of creation longs for Jesus to make all things new, not just us. And when he does, all of the created order will be transformed, will be made new when our salvation is made complete, when we're finally redeemed and in the presence of God. And as this great promise found clearly in the word of God is, as great as this is a promise, it's a promise made to you if you're one of Jesus' followers, it also presents that tension that reality of groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly, what a powerful phrase, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's, if I've ever heard of attention that's it. Both of these things are true all at the same time. And I'm so appreciative that the Bible doesn't give trite answers to real problems. It lays it out real clearly. Now, you know a verse, just a few verses down, Romans eight twenty eight. it says this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And this verse is so true. This verse is absolutely something that you hold on to in every single step of every day. But I want to tell you this. What I love is that these verses are only five verses apart. What we often do when people are going through the valley, what we often do when people are experiencing deep sorrow is we just put an arm around them and tell them all things are going to work for the good. They are. But maybe the very best thing that they can hear is that groaning inwardly, we wait eagerly. Or maybe the very best thing they can hear is nothing. And you just saddle up to them, put an arm around them, and weep together. This is the stuff we get to do. We get to walk life together in community of a people of hope, of a people who do, not just theoretically, but in our everyday world, we get it. Jesus is coming back. He will make all things new, but it's easy to forget it when you're going through it. And the beautiful thing is, as a community of believers, we get to come alongside each other and hold each other up when it's hard to see that this is all going to take place. This passage is also another powerful reminder of the people in your relational world. The people in your relational world who don't yet follow Jesus, watch this. Romans 8 says that they're all groaning. They're all groaning, but they don't have the first fruits of the spirit. They don't have the hope of Jesus and his return. They're just groaning. You might be here today and you get it because that's the spiritual state where you are. And you can mask it lots of different types of ways. It can be masked with ambition, it can be masked with things, making a comfortable life. It can be masked by relationships, lots of things to put on it. But at the end of the day, you know a soul that groans. And the great news that I get to communicate to you, the great news that people in your relational world want to communicate to you today is this. The groaning might not go away, but the hope that you don't have can be there. So this is why we do what we do. This is why we make a list of the people in our relational world and we put them on a card. This is why we consistently pray for them of what God would do in their lives that we could never do. This is why we consistently invest in their lives out of love and concern. This is why we're a people who invite others to events like our kids musical, who invite people to our Christmas Eve services just so they can taste and see of who this God is. That's why we keep coming back to Trinity Church so that we can get better prepared to be a people of intentional influence. This is why we live on mission is that there's people in our world who don't yet know Jesus. And we're not going to stop because we know that's a life worth living. This is what Jesus would have us be about until he returns and the great news is there's people in your life people in your life who are waiting to hear what you already know. Every year at Christmas time, I love to consider uh, one great reality I try every year to remind myself of. You see, at Jesus' initial entry, his initial arrival, he came in the most vulnerable of ways, a frail human being just like you and I. But the Bible says in his second advent, when he comes again, he's coming anything but. Revelation 19, 11 says this, John seeing this vision, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. His eyes, oh I'm sorry, uh, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That deserves a yay God. One, two, three, yay God. This is Jesus and this is him coming back. And how he'll come back as the conquering king to take you, to take you home to be his. In the in-between time, what do we do? We do what Romans 8 said, we wait for it patiently. Our now what idea, what we walk with this week, just as people awaited Jesus' first arrival, so we lean forward awaiting his return. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you so very much for your word that gives us direction, word that gives us perspective, a word that gives us hope. And as we can taste just a little bit of what generations before were looking forward to in the first advent, so we look forward to your second, to your second arrival to us. And so, Father, we want to say thank you. Thank you for the fact that you have brought Jesus into this world, entering into our humanity. And as a result, God, we can not only be made right with you now, but be right with you forever. And we know this is all true because it has nothing to do with ourselves, nothing we can do to be acceptable to you, but all what you've done for us. It completely blows our minds. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I don't have that hope. I mean, I know what it is to groan. But I have no idea of where the groaning ever stops, where the hope really begins. And I wanna tell you, if that's your story, I have great news for you today, because that can change. Even before you leave this place, it begins with admitting, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior, admitting that you have been stained by that curse that we talked about back in Genesis 3. But it's also believing, believing that Jesus is the snake crusher. Jesus came, and he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Jesus came and did exactly what he came to do to bring you life to the full. And so C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm gonna walk your way. You've given an example for me of how to follow. That's what I'm gonna do until you take me home. The great news is news is right where you're at today. You can pray a simple prayer in response to this great love that God has for you. There's no class to attend. There's no hoops to go through. It's you and God right here, right now. And my prayer is that if you do that today, would you please tell someone? Tell someone who brought you today. Tell someone who's been praying for you. Tell someone that you know a joy that you've never known before. Father, thank you for your rich and amazing love over us. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.